Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Carol Ramsey who is a Scottish crime writer and she has published 14 novels to great acclaim. The first of those, Absolution, came out in 2007 and was shortlisted for the British Crime Writers Association New Blood Dagger Award for first books by unpublished writers. That novel was also the first in a series set in Glasgow and featuring D.I. Colin Anderson and D.S. Freddie Costello. To date, there have been 12 novels in this series, the most recent, On an Outgoing Tide, published earlier this year. Carol has also published two standalone novels, Mosaic and The Cursed Girls, the latter of which has just come out in paperback. A graduate of the British School of Osteopathy, Carol runs a large osteopath centre treating animals and humans. Carol, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Lovely to be here, thank you. Now, I mentioned there that you know, you've written, I think, 14 novels, including 12 in this series. And, you know, the first one came out and, and it was obviously to great acclaim. Did you have an idea that this was going to be a series or, or was it on the back of that validation of being shortlisted for the award that you thought, I'm maybe onto something here? To tell you the truth, I never have any idea what I'm doing. I'm gloriously sort of ignorant of the publishing world as a, as a whole. And um, maybe because I do like uh, reading serial fiction, that I thought that would be a good place to go. But you know, some authors say, oh, they'll start off their series and they'll keep the police really, the police uh, main character really young so that they've got space to grow into a 20 book series. But I, I, I never thought it out like that. Not, not at all. I suppose that the thing is, because I would imagine that would be quite difficult because you can't predict how your readership's going to react and are you going to be able to take them with you. But I'm, I'm guessing after, you know, that's 12 in that series now, you've got, a, you know, a well-established fan base for those two characters and that kind of book. Absolutely. And your agent and your publishers are not shy in telling you when they say things like this is not working, <laughs> you know, and it don't do this. and do that. I've, I've heard from other authors being asked to sort of change tack and maybe what they who they think is a junior character starts coming to the fore too much and they become a main character. Um, but I've always been lucky. And, um, and I think my two characters get on well together. But I like that idea. There's almost a sort of ensemble cast to it. It's not just one guy going out there and do it all on his own. You know, there's there's four or five of them and they, they all get a wee, a wee go at being centre stage, if you like. Now, I'm guessing you're, obviously, in terms of this series, you are the oracle because you're the creator. But with each passing book, is there still something in the back of your mind thinking, right, I need to make sure, I, I mentioned this in book three, so I don't want somebody, because you, know you know how forensic readers can be sometimes if they read book eight in the series and they go, wait a minute. You know, is that just, is that part of the challenge of writing a series like that? I can say I've never found that, but also I don't have a Bible. You know, a lot of a, a lot of authors doing a long series keep a Bible the same way as like the, the James Bond character has a Bible. You know, he drinks this cocktail, he dresses like that. That's the gun he uses. I know my characters as if they're members of my family, which sounds really bizarre, but I know what they would go into a restaurant and eat and I know what they would have to drink and I know what sports they do and what they hate doing and who they get on with and who they don't go on with, what they watch on the telly, what sort of books they'd like to read. So, so yes, from that point of view, I sort of know them, so I don't need to write it down. But because I work with a, a Russian who was, who was born in Moscow, I wanted to have someone in my character be half Russian in the book, be half Russian, because I thought that will come in useful sometimes. So I mentioned that in book one, and it came in very useful in book four, when all of a sudden the Russian mafia appear. And you know how sometimes on a soap opera, this person says, oh, I happen to be fluent in Russian as well. And you think, well, you've not mentioned that up till now. <laughs> it's always been clear that one of the characters you know, is very likely to have a, a good uh, grasp of the Russian language. And the other thing is you have to age dogs. I'm very aware that, you know, human pregnancies last nine months. You know, in some books, they can go on for three and a half years because the author's <laughs> not quite paying attention. But the wee dog... Then it got, came to the, the outgoing tide. The wee dog really was knocking on for about 18 or 19. And I thought, he has to go. And I got loads and loads of letters complaining about that. You know, I've, I've killed all sorts of people and done horrible things to people. But you get one dog peacefully put down at the vets and your public hates you. <laughs> was that hard for you to write as well? 
it was terrible for it was terrible for me to write and I gave it to two other uh, writers who will remain nameless but namely uh, Douglas Skelton and Michael Malone and they were both just sitting there with tears pouring down their eyes he said that was just it was just awful the way that dog has been to sleep well, that's bizarre because both of them have appeared in the podcast. And if memory serves me right, I think their dogs also appeared in the course <laughs> yes, of the podcast as well. That's right. And my dog's lying at the end of the city. So, you know. I'm used to, I'm used to dogs appearing on the podcast now. Um, what I was going to ask is, as well, when I mentioned Absolution, and I suppose for every writer when their first book comes out, it's, you know, you've been through that whole process. You've got the book, you've got the agent, the publisher, you get your book published. But then when the book actually starts to get a bit of traction. You're shortlisted for this prestigious award. That in itself, I'm guessing that must have been a brilliant feeling for you after the euphoria of being published for the first time. I don't know if brilliant is quite the word. It was uh, definitely scary. And um, you start inhabiting a world that you've got no experience of. I had to go down to the Park Lane Hotel into the thing that's now the Specsavers Awards and you're all herded into this room where you seem to stay for like two and a half hours and there's lots of people walking about with wee nibbly things and you're being introduced to people and you have a glass of wine and you have to eat a nibbly thing all at the same time. You can't shake hands with anybody. And then um, my agent told me, now when you go in, just look at where you're seated. If you don't have a straight run to the stage, you've not won and then you can enjoy yourself. <laughs> So, so I went in and I had a round and round and round and round way to the stage. So I thought, well, I've not won and that's fine. And I could sit down and enjoy my dinner. But you did have to sit and listen to Giles Brandreth talk for about three and a half hours. And it does go on till about two o'clock in the morning. And basically, you just want to take your shoes off and go home to your bed. That's really interesting about the seating plan. Well, but obviously, I mean, I don't know what they do at the Oscars, but I'm presumingly at the Oscars, if, you get the end, if you're at the end of a row, you've probably won. But, um, <laughs> yeah, there, must be, there must be something like that. You know, I, I was kind of just thinking it, it's nice to be nominated. But then it, does that give you impetus to go on and write the next book and, and the next book? Well, it's, it's quite an interesting story. I wrote the first two books at the same time because, um, I mean, I'd never wanted to be an author. I had no idea. I'm very good at lying and I've always wanted to kill people. So, But I didn't quite put them together to become a crime writer. I've always had trouble with my back. And in the end, my back fractured completely. I was in hospital for a very long time and because I had nothing else to do and also I wasn't ill, I was just, you know, on painkilling medication. Someone brought me in a paper mate pen and a clipboard and by the time I got back on my feet, literally, I'd written a quarter of a million words and they became the first two books. So the second book was there kind of along with the first book. And that's why I don't really know anything about how to write a book because I just did it, you know. Obviously, you know how to tell a story, but because one of the things that always fascinates, I think, every reader is, you know, particularly, you know, as you're saying, that story of you maybe get nothing else to do. So you're, you're kind of focused on, right, I'm going to write and you write two books at the same time. Where did that germ of the, the idea come from then, if you hadn't previously thought about becoming a writer? I don't really know. I wanted to kill, um, I always tell the story, I wanted to kill the woman in the bed opposite me who, <laughs> who had the intelligence of this pen. And uh, she would watch Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And she would watch the same episode twice in the same day. And in this particular instant, the question was, uh, what's the capital of Australia? And she said, Sydney. And I said, I don't think it is. I think it's one of those peculiar countries. I think the capital's Canberra. She says, no, it's Sydney. And of course, it came on and the answer was Canberra. And then later on, about half past six, the same episode was repeated. And the question was, you know, what's the capital of Australia? And she said, it'll be Sydney this time. And I thought... <laughs> I just, I, I don't know, but there was all these and you know, all these little irritations that you get in hospital when I say you're, you're not sick, you're perfectly conscious and there's a, you know, it's just pain relief you're there for. And um, I don't know, I just started to write. Please tell me that, who wants to be a millionaire episode with a gruesome end to the women's in one of your novels. <laughs> I, I do. I mean, there are, to tell you the truth, when you're thinking up someone to murder them, you know, you just write them in and you, you murder them. You actually tend to murder people you quite like. But if you're writing about someone that you really, really dislike, you know, you write them in and you give them halitosis or, you know, you make them represent Britain in the Eurovision Song Competition or something. <laughs> I mean, you do something really, really horrible to them. Because you know that thing I was saying about how people are fascinated? Because um, Neil Broadfoot was another guest on the podcast recently and I think his first novel, he was must have been walking along Princess Street in Edinburgh and thought, what happens if somebody gets thrown off the top of the Scott Monument? I'll do that. So that's how, you know, that's a bizarre idea. And suddenly 
that's the basis of a novel. He also tells the story of sitting in an incredibly boring meeting and say, thinking something like, I wonder what, what, how we could cheer this up. Oh, wouldn't it be funny if somebody just shot you in the head? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I've, I've sat in meetings like that, yeah. <laughs> so, Because I, I wonder then, then if friends or family are always a bit, a bit wary when they're interacting with crime writers. Uh, no, no, I think everybody's up for it. They know they know what you're like, you know. And, and people do volunteer to be murdered. A lot of people pay good money for charity just to be murdered in your in your book. They're they're delighted. People are delighted to be murdered. To be fair, that is a brilliant thing, actually. And I suppose there is, you know that way, obviously as a writer, the, the thrill is seeing your name in print on the front cover. But I suppose as a reader, if you're suddenly flicking through the page and you, you see yourself coming to a grisly end, and there's a sort oh. of some thrill to that. Yeah, so odd between you and me and only between you and me, if you really don't like someone, you know, pay a crime writer some money for charity and they will write the person in. So let's say it's your mother-in-law and you write them in as uh, some sort of um, street sex worker from New York who ends up strangled and put in a skip, but you don't tell them that they're in there and you just wrap wrap the book up and give them it for Christmas. And they all imagine my name being in there. So many side benefits to being a crime writer, I see. Oh, absolutely. We've, we've all got friends in very low places. I mentioned as well that I, I saw you tweeted about it, the, the paperback of The Cursed Girls, which is, has just come out as well. And, you know, you also had the, On Outgoing Tide come out earlier this year. I've asked other writers this, given the current circumstances, has it just been different challenges? Because norm, I'm guessing normally you would be, you know, doing book launches and book events and, you know, meeting the public and interacting with people. Yes, of course, you miss all that and you miss messing about with your pals. And uh, I am part of the Carry On Sleuthing team, along with Michael Malone and Douglas Skelton. So we're always dressing people up as pantomime horses and messing about that, doing things like that, which are all fun. And uh, and they just the company, when we do things like that, is, is really good. The crime writing circles are all just nice people and, you know, everybody gets a good laugh. But in a weird way, I've been quite glad that all the publicity has been quiet this year because running the practice, we were regarded as key workers. So we had to be in work all the way through lockdown. So I didn't have that boredom that I think a lot of other writers had. And just being able to focus on that part of the work, I I thought was quite good. And then I've I've been writing as well. So I was quite happy. And we're hoping to do something for Independent Bookshop Week, which is the week after next we're going to take the pantomime horse into the sea, but we're not allowed to get him wet, so he's going to be wearing wellies. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting. But we're, we're, we're working on that. That's a, that's a sort of project. Just to publicise, it'll probably be in Ettrick Bay over in Rossi. We'll do it. In terms of the podcast, what I like to do is just take people on the, I suppose, the literary journey of their life and take you back to, first of all, take you back to your childhood and ask you to pick your favourite book from childhood. And the one that you chose is Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. And what is it about that book that's stayed with you? Well, if I talk about that book too much, I just start to cry. And that, that shows you what it means to me and to a lot of other people. Um, women tend to be more than men. And now I can't read that book because it's just so upsetting. Anna was was herself a Quaker and described as, open inverted commas, a cripple. Nobody really knows what was wrong with her. Maybe it was some rheumatoid condition, but she certainly couldn't walk. And she was wheeled out, this was what, the 1850s, 1860s, wheeled out maybe to sit in the paddock where her brother's horse was on the other side of the fence. And that was the inspiration really for writing the life story of a horse. And that book did so much to change people's perceptions of, of animals. It was never written as a, a child's book. It was written as an adult's book when horses were as common as motor cars are now. It changed the law in America. It changed the law in this country. Bits of harness that were there to make horses look fashionable were banned instantly. You know, it, was a, it really did, in some ways, change the face of the planet that we have today. It's an outstanding book. But the bit where... Black Beauty is a carriage, basically working as a a taxi horse in London, and he falls down on Ludgate Hill and breaks his knees. You just say that to a Black Beauty fan and everybody goes into floods of tears. They didn't know that he was going to get back on his feet, you know. He could have been shot in the head right there, but he does get back on his feet and he's fine for the rest of the book. Because the thing that you just mentioned, which was the fact that it wasn't originally intended as a children's book, you know, the first time I realised that, and, you know, somebody else had chosen this book for that particular category, I'd never realised that not only was, had she intended it as, as adults, but also, I think, 
almost like trying to educate people and change attitudes and opinions to, I suppose, the treatment of horses. But as you say, the impact of it went way beyond its importance as a book. Uh, yes, and interestingly, and I can see where this comes from, but it's now become a bit of an anthem for slavery and a bit of an anthem for those who don't have a voice and are just disenfranchised. But I've always regarded it as a book about horses and about animals in the wider sense, but really it is a book about everybody. You know, it's a it's a fantastic novel, but not one I could come back to read because I would just find it too upsetting. The sad thing, I think, is that she, that's the only novel that she wrote, and I think she, she died just a few months after it was published as well. That's right, five, five months. She died, she died at the age of 56, yeah, five months after it was published. I also think as well, when you know, when you look at these the extraordinary amount of copies, I think it's about over 50 million copies sold as well, and it remains a, an important book that, you know, it's extraordinary that, you know, a book written in 1877 probably still resonates with people now all this time I, later. Just have to look about, you know, I remember the, the, the TV series in this country with the famous theme tune, which we're going to play at Ettrick Bay for uh, our uh, pantomime <laughs> horse. And as soon as people hear that tune, they think Black Beauty. There's been, what, five, six film versions of it. It's everywhere. It's truly an amazing piece of work. Fantastic. So in terms of, so your love of, I'm guessing your love of animals, did that precede uh, reading a book like Black Beauty or did that just complement it? Uh, oh, I th- see, I was I was born in a tenement in Govan and we had an Anderson shelter in the back garden and my mother refused to buy me a pony to put in the Anderson shelter. So <laughs> I had to make do with a pet worm and, uh, and just thinking about having a horse-like beauty. What age would you have been then when you read that book? Oh, I think I must have been about seven or eight. I read at a very young age, a very young age, because I've got a sister who's about two and a half years older than me. And I think I used to steal her books immediately. So I probably had a reading age a wee bit more advanced of what I actually was. And maybe that's why it made such a big emotional impact on me. I suppose that's the benefit sometimes of having older siblings, because they're kind of almost dragging you along, as it were, in terms of things like reading. Yes, but she used to read things like Anne of Green Gables and all that girly stuff, Heidi and all that kind of thing. I was into the famous five. And then obviously a Black Beauty, Famous Five, and then Agatha Christie, and that was me away. You know, I, I didn't do any of those proper books at all. Well, that, that takes us nicely on to the kind of teenage formative years books. And when we were corresponding beforehand, you had mentioned that kind of the jump from Enid Blyton to Agatha Christie. To be fair, the first book you mentioned was Brain's Clinical Neuro- Neurology, which had been a university textbook. Thankfully, you're not going to talk about that. It would have been a first and probably a last on the podcast. <laughs> And interestingly, it was edited by Roger Bannister. Wow. Of course, because he, he was a clinical neurologist. So I, I, that's why it always sort of resonates because I, I was a, a runner in my sort of youth. And it always sort of resonates me that you know, this great man also had the brains to edit that book. Yes, it's a, that's a good book. But I think the book I chose was it The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Well, no, it was actually Wyatt's Hurricane by Wyatt's Hurricane, yeah. Because those two were very sort of close. In my sort of Agatha Christie days, wandering around the school library, and then I picked up Wyatt's Hurricane and I read that. I've read all Desmond Bagley books and I love them all. You know, he's in that genre of a, just a pure thriller writer, Cold War, spy, all that kind of thing, maybe showing off how old I am. But they, re, uh, they republished a book that he had half written and members of his family finished it off two or three years ago. They brought it out called Domino Island. And I just hated it because it was. I don't know, it just, it just didn't have his flair or, or maybe it's so much time has passed that when you're reading a thriller set in the 60s and everybody just genre-wise just seems a wee bit more stereotyped than they seem to be. It didn't sit well with me at all, um, republishing that, but Wyatt's Hurricane is a fantastic book. And again, a previous guest in the podcast, Neil Lancaster, and he'd chosen another Desmond Bagley book, Running Blind, and he'd said, you know, like, probably in kind of 70s likes of him and Alistair MacLean and guys like that, they were absolutely massive, those kind of mm-hmm. real high-octane thrillers. He was saying he thinks it's a shame that for a while Desmond Bagley kind of fell out of fashion, as it were, he said, because the books are just brilliant thrillers. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic entertainment. I think Running Blind um, starts off with the line, if a flower really, you know, in Alice in Wonderland, man talks to a flower and doesn't bat an eyelid. But if that really happened in real life, a man with no true fear. And that's very true. 
that's the one that starts when the man looks in the mirror and a different face looks back at him. I think that's how Running Blind starts. Yeah. So those, because I think he wrote, you know, over and above the one that you said just came out, I think he wrote about 17 novels yeah. himself. And there was a period where, where people like that, they were the, the real blockbusters of the day. I suppose fashions change as, as well, but I, I'm guessing that even if you were to read them now, a good thriller is still a good thriller. They are, absolutely. It's an interesting point about Desmond Bagley was that he was a very shy man and he also had a very bad stammer. And I was reading a, it was an interview, I'm sure it was with one of his family who said that they didn't know if you would cope with the idea that writers nowadays have to have a public persona. You know, you have to be out there, you have to be doing the circuit and that he would probably have just stayed out of all that. But I think he would be a, the better man for it because if there's a wee bit of mystery about who the writer is and nobody knows anything about him, you know, that, that, that should have been some publicist dream. How do you find that, that side of the, the publishing business? Uh, you, you've got to do it. And most of the time I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy all of it, actually. It's fine if uh, uh, we, we just turn things around to suit us. You know, if, if there's anything going that we don't, um, that we think we're not going to particularly enjoy, we'll make sure we do enjoy it. Because one of the things, and again, people who are listening to these podcasts, there's regular themes that come up. And one of the things that I... It strikes me, again, talking to yourself, talking to other writers, like Sir Douglas Skelton, etc. that crime writing community in Scotland, it's such a positive, supportive community that people seem to get on, but also want to help each other. And your success is celebrated by others and vice versa, which is such a nice thing to hear. Absolutely. I'm the expert in where to stab people because of my knowledge of the internals of human anatomy. That's got to always get emails and, you know, can I stab them there and can I poison them with this? And, and what do I need to do to them so that they're sort of lying down for about half an hour, but after that they can get up and go for help? That, that's where my expert knowledge comes in. Some people would be, I don't know if alarmed or fascinated if they did a search of your emails coming in and out then. <laughs> I think I would be arrested. But it is a... You know, again, I've made this point that, you know, there, are, there is aspects of writing which are it's a solitary profession because sometimes it's just you sitting there with a notepad or a laptop. But then when you, when you then can expand that to friends who are fellow writers and, you know, you're helping them, they're helping you, you can do these events and different things together, then it's no longer a, a solitary thing. That's what I guess one of the benefits of it are. Yes, and uh, when, I, when I wrote Mosaic, the girl in it had a dissociative identity disorder, which is described as, it can be just multiple personalities in the way that you see in films, people are eight or nine distinct personalities. But it can also be that you yourself have got two personalities, a sort of public one and a private one. And I'm thinking, well, in that case, every crime writer in the world probably has dissociative identity disorder because you do have that one well, the, the person who likes to be in the tower typing away your friends or your, your characters in your book, you've generally got a dog lying at your feet. That's your world. And some of, the, some of us do hate to be taken out of that world. It takes them a wee while to get out and, you know, get on the circuit and get your face out there. You do it because it's part of the job. And once you're there, you do enjoy it. But sometimes you think, oh, no, <laughs> no. I, w- I would just rather, you know, stay at home and write, but you've got to do it. What made you, you know, I mentioned, you know, you've got that whole series of novels in, in the crime series. What made you decide to to write the, the kind of standalone books? You've, you've written a couple of them now. Was it just an idea that you had that just didn't, you had to write it, but it obviously didn't fit within what the other, the series that you were doing? Yes. Now, all that is the fall of the murder of Roger Ackroyd, because um, when you're writing a series, I would hate to write the same book again and again. But your publisher sort of wants you to write the same book again and again. So it's got to be on that familiar theme. You know, you, you can't suddenly introduce, you know, a spacecraft or time travel or an identical, an identical twin or anything like that. And the Red Red Snow that I wrote, it's um, set up in a glen somewhere near Glenative. And the weather is so bad that the crime scene gets cut off. So that was my nod to the locked room mystery. And I've always wanted to write an unreliable narration mystery like the murder of Roger Ackroyd and you cannot do that when the reader is seeing what's going on like the true version of what's going on you have to hear it through another's voice then the reader has to make their mind up can they trust the voice that they're hearing so I really had to do that and I know now that I took my editor out we were having lunch and I said to her I've got this idea for a standalone 
And Keymaster thought, oh, just don't. Just, just <laughs> write what you can write. Don't start doing fancy things. But it came out and it, it sold very well. It sold so well, in fact, that The Cursed Girls and Mosaic are the same book. So really, I've published two, but I've only written one. But that's, that's you know, obviously, as you say, I suppose your editor's half joking when she's, because she obviously sees the success of the series. But then when you do something different, it challenges you as a writer, but then you see the, the rewards of that as well, which must be good for you. Yes, and we did have quite, we did sit and have quite a chat about it. And we also thought about, um, I suggested that we could make it that when the police do appear in that book, they are our police, if you like, that they are the serial not characters. And she says, it's up to you, just do whatever you like. So, But I was watching Endeavour at that time and I thought it'd be nice to have just a nice, quietly spoken detective like that come on the scene and, and that's exactly what he did. So I'm guessing then going forward, you'll just, will you just see what, what idea comes to the fore, whether it's another book in the series or whether it's another standalone? I would like to answer that question, but I would have to kill you uh, <laughs> if I answered it properly. So, so I can't. But there are things afoot, shall we say, in the world of maybe the more visual experience. And it depends how that might go as to what my publishers kind of want me to do next. So, uh, But more than that, I cannot say. But it probably won't happen because it happens to like one in 10,000 writers. So we'll just go with it. Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddihy, and my guest, Carol Ramsey. And Carol, we are on to the third book choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the one that you've chosen is The Children of Men by P.D. James. Again, a fantastic novel, and I think everybody should read that novel. It's um, what happens in the, you know, you say to yourself, oh, it's set in the future. It's set in something like 2023, although it was written in about 1985. It's the book that P.D. James always wanted to write, but her publishers just kept wanting another Dalglish novel, as, as they were on the telly at that time. In the book, the human race has become barren and nobody knows why, so the population is ageing. There's no children around, there's no young people. Women, most of them go mad and are quite hysterical and have to be on medication to keep their sanity. The, the United Kingdom has, has split up and England is ruled by a benign dictator and a council of philosophers. So it's a, it's a nice place to live. And you can live with outside the, what they call it, the circle. If you live within the circle, you'll still get your gas and your electricity. If you live outside the circle, you're kind of on your own. But there's a big list of diseases that if you, you get those diseases, really, you have to be put down. There's euthanasia all the way through the book. So if, you're, if you've got any diseases that are easily treatable today, they are not treatable then because they can't manufacture the drugs for it anymore. So it's a, a startling book. And then one woman gets pregnant. And of course, the Council of Philosophers are after her to try and catch her and find out how she man what is it about her, where her good friend wants to just keep her on the run so she can have her baby. It was made into a very good film with Clive Owen and Michael Caine. And the film took the essence of the book and I think carried it quite well through. Obviously, the, the book is better because it's so much more detailed, but it's a lovely interplay of both sides being right in the conflict. It's a, it's a very depressing book, but a very good book. So the other book I'll tag on to that is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is just fantastic and a total antithesis to the first one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because it's interesting, I'd read that, uh, although, as you said, that the, it was the essence of the novel that was turned into a film, but apparently P.D. James was still quite pleased with the finished product in the film, which I suppose isn't always the case when authors see their own work on the big or small screen. That's right, but they did do a, a very good job to the message that was in the book, you know, that life is important and look after each other, basically. Because it's funny that, you know, that way, as you mentioned, that, you know, the book's written, at, at the time it seems like a kind of dystopian novel. And then suddenly we are, we're almost at that point where it was set. Do you find then, are you thinking things that are actually happening or things that are in our society now, are they mirrored in the book at all? Or is there wee, wee elements that you can see hints of what she was maybe not predicting, but, you know, kind of projecting? Not with the P.D. James book, but Desmond Bagley wrote a very good book called The Enemy. And there's a line in there that says, you know, the human race isn't going to be wiped out by something huge. The human race is going to be wiped out by something so small you can't see it. 
it is going to be wiped out by a virus. And that has always stuck in my mind. Obviously, being medical, you think, yeah, that is what's going to happen. So, so yeah, he was he was right on the ball pre-COVID. So, yeah, that, yeah. That's, the, that's the one that I sort of associate with what's been going on at the moment. Because I suppose there's been a few writers, even Stephen King, for example, and, and other writers who have written those kind of books that are maybe either they've read something and that's resonated with them. Mm-hmm. And as you say, in the current climate, there's an element that's quite chilling that people have been that perceptive and putting that in a novel ahead of its time. But then I think um, even to distill that down to its, its very basic, very basic degree, my book Rat Run has a house on the side of a hill and it's totally fictitious. There's, there's a road and a big house and some cottages alongside. And many a patient has told me, you know, I've, I've been there and I've visited the house and I've seen the cottages opposite the wood. Now, I totally made that up. But if you look at the hill in question, there's a reservoir on top and then there's a hill. You think, oh, I would put a house there because that's where you would get the good view. And then, of course, someone's just thinking exactly what you thought, but they just actually built a house there. So there is a, you know, writers are human too. And and we do pick up what everybody else picks up and just distill it in a different form. So, yes, the good thing is to be the first person that does it, not the sixth person who had that idea. I mean, that's quite strange, actually. But if somebody's reading a new book and then they they see the reality of it, but you just, it just came out of your head. Yeah, There's something yeah. a, bit, a bit magical about that. Because I was wondering as well that, you know, obviously with just in publishing in general, there's been books in the past about, you know, pandemics, etc. I'm not sure if how writers are going to deal with what's going on just now, because I'm not sure if readers will want to read about the current situation for a while. I think they might want to escape from that in terms of their reading. Well, I wrote, I was editing, because writers kind of write in the future, because I write in real time, so therefore I'm predicting what's going to be happening like a year on from now. So when I was editing on an outgoing tide, I was writing about a time when the pandemic was there. But of course, the year before, I didn't know it was coming. Right. But I found it, I found it slotted in greatly because we were just coming out of, the, of lockdown at the time the book set. And it was interesting that you could have an old person in a house and someone coming to their door and doing their shopping for them but they had never met them. But this relationship had gone on from nowhere. Over months, they actually became quite good friends. These two people who would never have met in any other way. And then, of course, people were going about wearing masks and gloves. So that was good for no fingerprints and no good facial recognition. So in some ways, it was a gift to a crime novel. Every cloud. (laughs) Absolutely. In terms of, because, you know, when when, uh, I ask people to choose a book, to recommend it. It's always a difficult one and it's it's obviously just something that, that comes to your mind. Do you find people ask you a lot for recommendations of books, you know, and is it something that you do quite a lot? People tend to ask ask you things like, I like such and such a writer. Who else writes like that? But maybe looking for something that's not too gruesome, not too violent, or a police procedural that's a wee bit more midsummer than it is Chicago PD, you know, that they're sort of you know, looking for you to to just go around the market and say, well, this book's very like that, or that book's, you know, you would you would enjoy that one. That sort of thing, yes. And sometimes books to stay clear of if they're particularly sensitive. Obviously, there's different aspects of crime writing within that genre. Was it the police procedural? Was that something you were always comfortable doing? And, and you already mentioned the fact that you are the, the Scottish crime writing expert on how to dispatch people anyway, so... And hide the bodies. I I like to write about the police because it is quite natural that they will be involved in 17 or 18 murders over 17 or 18 years. And it's unless you really know a lot about technology, it's very difficult to write about a private eye. And private eyes tend to still do divorces and a lot of computer fraud tracing and things like that. They don't actually solve crime as such. You know that there's a famous T-shirt that says, Jessica Fletcher, I killed them all. You know, I mean, Jessica Fletcher should have been should have been arrested many, many times because it's obviously hard. Everywhere she goes, somebody dies. So if you're looking at a long series, it's it's difficult to justify that. Do you ever get feedback, or do you, do you ever have people in the police that help you in terms of some sort of technicalities, or do you ever get feedback from people? Because obviously they they'll know it's a novel, so you are allowed to take liberties, I suppose, up to a point. Well, therein the, lies the pleasure of the day job. Because if I come up to a patient with a very long acupuncture needle and I say, I understand that you're a police officer. Now, what would happen when da, 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 they will tell me the truth? Um, so I have a huge advantage over authors who have to go and speak to the police professionally, if you see what I mean, like profession to profession. So, so we just chat away. 
But the best people to ask about the police are defence counsel lawyers, and the best people to ask about defence counsel lawyers are the police. So if you ask their opposite number, you get it kind of down and dirty. And a lot of people think my husband must be a police officer or something like that, because the procedure is never authentic, because that would be too boring to write. But they, just the way they all fight with each other and the photocopier's not working and that sort of thing, they, they see that as very, um, as, as very, very true. But I, I was just chatting to someone the other day, and, and this is why I still do the day job, because this is marvellous. But there's a thing called urban orienteering, where you just run about in the middle of the night and you race from, from place to place using a 3D map, a 3D map running through the city at midnight. And this is a race and women do this. It's like a form of orienteering. And obviously there's no crowds can watch because if there was a crowd watching, that would be obvious that that was a route to take. So you don't. So you could be sent from where we are here out on the West Coast into St Enoch's car park, having to pass through 20 points on the way. And you just click your, your wee computer watch up against the thing that says, oh, hello, right, we know you've been here. You can now go on. But it doesn't trace where you are in between. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because then you have women and men running through multi-storey car parks in the middle of the night and nobody knows they're there. Now, I didn't know there was such a thing as urban orientating, but I do now. And that is definitely going in a novel. That's just just in itself. That's a bizarre thing. I've, it, never, heard, I've never heard of that. I know, I've never heard of it either. And so, so the click point can be at the top of a multi-storey car park. But you've got to figure out how to get from the street you're in to the multi-storey car park and the quickest way up to the top floor by looking at a 3D map, which is obviously a huge skill set to itself. But yeah, fascinating. In terms of the, your book choices, I will take you from the books that you would recommend to anyone. So a book that I couldn't pay you to read again. And again, when we were corresponding, you said this might be a controversial choice. And the one that you've chosen is The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman, which has been... I think, in hardback and paperback, a a big, big seller. Yes, so there's two things. I now think it has become regarded as a Marmite book. You'd either love it or you hate it. There's there's nothing in between. And also, I think I expected so much of it that I was almost bound to be disappointed. And I tried to read it three times, and I I can't really tell you what it's about. I mean, I know it's about these old people that go out and they solve a murder and da 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 but uh, I just... I was confused about what horse the book was on. Was it really cosy? Was it a bit like The Last of the Summer Wine? Was it more Shakespeare and Hathaway kind of humour? You know, that, that sort of TV series was it? I, I didn't quite know what it was. And the, the humour didn't strike me as, um, as sort of genuine. I found it a wee bit contrived. But maybe that's because I'm a Glaswegian and a Scottish person in our sense of humour. Isn't that sort of boremouth, gentle humour, which I think is where the book was going? You know, I wanted it to be a lot more caustic than it actually was. And it was actually just quite a nice book. So therefore, I didn't enjoy it. Because I'm always, and I've had this discussion with people before about celebrities writing books. And I mean, I, I genuinely think that, that he's, he's written the book and it's, it's obviously proved very popular. But then obviously you get that publicity and, and you can't help he would claim that he'd written it privately and nobody knew. But you can't help feeling a guy who's like in primetime TV that the agents and publishers are going, oh, this is great, because you've got that ready-made audience. I remember giving the book to my mum and dad and my mum my mom was reading it, uh, thinking about who her and my dad would play in the TV adaptation <laughs> of it. But what, interesting, that, you know, when you're talking about the humour, because when I, I read it and there was elements of it that reminded me of P.G. Woodhouse. And I've tried reading a couple of them and they just... And maybe for the same reasons as, as you were saying, it just doesn't it doesn't resonate with me. And I, I know people who rave about it and, and say Woodhouse is the, the Jeeves and Worcester is the funniest thing ever. And that I just didn't laugh. And that, I think they it reminded me of that kind of sort of genteel South of England type humour that that maybe that's the audience that have really flocked it. Yeah, yes, I, I, th- I think you're probably right, but it's not it's not a sort of a humour. It's not the sort of humour that grabs me. Not not at all. So I think he's there's another one coming out the second. So it's obviously a series that he's that he's got, and I, I suppose in, in terms of a series, it's a quite quirky idea. Of, and he's just got these old people, and you can see it will be turned into a TV series of that. I've no doubt. And then I think there's another one coming out. I'd read Graham Norton's written some novels as well, and again, I I've read a couple of them, and I was pleasantly surprised actually because 
you know, you're never quite sure with a celebrity if they just decide I'm fed up doing what I'm doing, I'll just write a book. But then he's got a very caustic sense of humour, hasn't he? So I think uh, I think I might get on better with a with a Graham Norton book. Again, just in terms of your own reading, you know, you said you tried to read that book two or three times. Do you give up with books or are you one of these people that if you start a book, you, you're determined to try and finish it? I do. I do try and finish it. But what often happens is that I'll get a book into review for somebody. So all of a sudden I'm trying to read this and it's a bit like going through treacle. And then over here, there's a shiny new book just waving at me. And it's very easy. To, I'll, I'll come back to that one and I'll go and read this one. And, and that's just to get a blurb on the back. But you're you're really interested and you, you know the person and you think, hey, I've heard a bit about this book, why he's been writing it. And I wonder what he did with this. I wonder what he did with that. Yes, so so there's always a shiny new book out there to be read, but it is very unusual for me to give up on a book. But the third time I got to the end of the Thursday Murder Club, and then I just kind of shrugged. That's not, I mean, that's not damned by faint criticism. Because <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I was fascinated, I was talking to someone recently about reading the reviews of their own books and whether that whether that's a good thing or a bad thing for a writer. Because, you know, you get the, the glowing reviews, you get the, you know, the one-star reviews, and then there's that whole batch in the middle but I suppose the temptation is just to stay away from it because you know it's obviously just somebody's opinion on on your work do you actually dip in and out and see what people think of your books oh absolutely but my my agent gave me a good piece of advice and said you know you, you're allowed to sulk but sulk for a finite period of time and then get back to the writing I never change your writing because of something that a, a critic or a reviewer has said, you know, there are no monuments to critics in the world. There's monuments to writers. Uh, that's something I always sort of keep reminding myself. Because I think as well, you know, it's the same that there's books that you'll read that you'll enjoy, other people won't, because it's, it's such a subjective thing anyway. Absolutely. And, and even within crime fiction, there's such a huge broad, a huge range of, of things. It's a really broad church. So, so yes, just read it. And if someone says, you know, it wasn't my cup of tea, then that's absolutely fine. But if, if someone criticises something that I was aiming for, you know, then you think, I actually meant that. <laughs> you know, so in some ways, them criticising you for it means that I achieved what I set out to do. The fact you didn't like it was neither here nor there, but that's what that's what I was aiming for. And and sometimes I'm guessing you'll get criticised for things because somebody told me they they once get criticised because somebody received a copy of their book, having ordered it online, and it was mouldy. They said and, and, and nothing to do with them because they hadn't produced the book; they just written the words, but they still get a one star review as a result. That's right. Or they get a one star review because the postman left it on top of the wheelie bin or something. I, I got a, a three-star review once and there was one line and it says, wife reads books. And I thought, so I looked at the reviewer and he, he gives these, I think he's, he's quite iconic. He bought a dog bowl and he said, dog drank water. And then there was a review for a toaster that said, warmed up bread. Now, I think that guy, that guy could be in advertising. That is quite clever. Because I, I always feel... You know, you, you will get people, you have to kind of shrug off, I suppose, that public criticism. I suppose that comes as part of the job. My day job, quite often we are maybe doing things through football. And I used to go to games and I would read the team lines out and a wee video that was put on Facebook before the game. And then there was obviously, there would be like some comments that were, they would just be a bit abusive or critical or whatever, sometimes of your appearance. And so what happened for a while was my wife's Saturday night entertainment was going through them. And reading out all the disparaging comments about me to me. <laughs> <laughs> I kept thinking, wanting to say to her, what makes you think I'm enjoying listening to that? <laughs> but I bet she enjoyed doing it. She absolutely did. I think half the time she just made them up herself. <laughs> um, Maybe she's getting all her friends to write in as well. <laughs> never know. We're on to the, the fifth and final question, Carol, and it's the either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading. And you've given me Two choices, two books that are one's just come out this year and one that's just about to come out. So the first one was A Rattle of Bones by Douglas Skelton, who you mentioned it's his the third book in the, the Rebecca Conley series. That's coming out in August. And I, I take it just, you know, obviously knowing Douglas as well, you've got the benefit before the rest of us of, of getting to read this book before it hits the shelves. Absolutely. And I had read it in a much earlier draft as well. It's an interesting thing about these books I'm about to talk about is the way that women are portrayed. Now, as far as I'm concerned, my characters in the book are characters in the book and they are of a, a certain gender and that's just, that's just how you write them. 
And I don't know if men get into more trouble when they try and write about a female character, but his publisher had made a few comments about the about the female journalist in the book, about, um, you know, she was uh, too depressed and she should be a wee bit more happy. But then with everything she went through in the book before, you know, she's got every right to be depressed. So um, we had a, a sort of chat about that and uh, he just was letting me read a, a much more, to, more towards a final draft. And um, I thought the version before was fine, but that this version is fine as well but it's interesting how sometimes other people view your characters but to you they're real and that's how they they would have reacted in that situation now it's like someone saying you know your brother would never have done that you think well I know him he's my brother yes he would because I suppose that whole editing process because then you're getting someone else as you say characters in a world that you absolutely are immersed in but then somebody's just looking at it from a different perspective it's a valuable part of the whole process, I suppose, because sometimes somebody sees something that you're so invested in it that you maybe don't. Or is it that you've not written it in the, you know, there's always a thing about the book in your head is quite different from the book on the page. And I, and I still take a writer's group and they say things like, oh, but what I meant was, yes, I know that's what you meant, but that's not what it says. So you've also also got that layer to it as well, is that did you really mean to write her like that? Or or should she just maybe back down and just sort of calm down a wee bit because she has a, a steadier character than that? So so yes, there's a, there's sort of two layers of how to look at that. The end of the day, the person that pays you the money, you know, is the one whose advice you should take, really. You know, you can put up a good fight, but if they say actually, then maybe you've got to kowtow to that. I suppose it's all, if you've got that kind of relationship, it's, it's all about compromising and hopefully at the end of it coming out with the best book for you. I mean, no editor has given you advice to write a worse book. That's true, <laughs> yeah. The other book that you chose, and it's the first book in, in what I think is going to be a new series featuring a, a detective, Shona Oliver, and it's a book called In Dark Water by Lynn McEwen that just came out in June there. Lynn's quite an interesting character. She was a journalist photographer. She's been all over the world. She covered the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's all sorts of things like that. And now she's just turning her hand to, to crime fiction. And it's, it's interesting that she's not a journalist because she doesn't write like a journalist, but her writing is very atmospheric and photogenic. So I wasn't surprised to learn that she had been a, a photographer. And it's set um, down in Dumfries on that part of the world in both the uh, Scots and English police forces are involved in uh, solving the murder. So it was a, a very refreshing read. But, you know, she's just a bit too good and there's too many good Scottish crime writers already. So she's just another one coming <laughs> along the boat, coming on board the boat. But, yes, it'll be, it'll be great to meet her in the flesh. And I think she's going to do some blogs for me as well. So she's good. It's a very good de- debut, a very good debut indeed. Because I wonder that, of you know this whole kind of Scottish crime writing scene that's pretty vibrant as you mentioned already it's quite varied in terms of the different types of books but I suppose for people who are maybe wanting to break into that they're probably having to the challenge is to think of something that, that gives you that unique space within a very competitive market as it were. Yes because uh, Byers Road is a bit like midsummer you know there's sort of bodies flying around <laughs> the place at the moment so it was quite and it's it's a very watery book because the the main character actually works for um, the lifeboat service. So you get all that sort of side of it as well. So it's, it's quite, a, quite a thrilling book and a, a very good book. But uh, landing on, if you had asked me this week what, what I'm reading, I'm actually reading the book. You know how when William McIlvany passed away, there was notes for a, like the prequel to Laidlaw. And uh, Ian Rankin has taken that and has written that book. So that's what I'm reading at the moment which is obviously very exciting, being a, a huge fan of both those men. But as you, it's so beautifully written and so entrenched in the 1970s, in some ways it's a bit difficult to read because of the machismo aspect of it. You know, and, and I'm just wondering how that book is going, to, is going to fit in with today's world of crime fiction. It's, a, it's an excellent snapshot of how things were at the time. As I said, you can almost smell the Aramis in the senior service. <laughs> it's the way it's written. It's, um, it's very dingy clubs and horrible hotels up in Glasgow. And oh, yeah, it's a very good book, but very much of its time. Because obviously this is just an audio podcast, so people not be able to see the uh, the jealous expression that came over my face when you told me you had a copy of that book, because I, I can't wait. I mean, I love the, the Laidlaw trilogy, love Michael Vanney, so I can't wait to see what Ian's done with this. 
I think the answer is he's done an incredibly good job. You know, when that first, that news first came out that he was going to be doing this, I was full of admiration for him because that's, you know, he's a big name and a big writer in his own right. But then to tackle, you know, Michael Vanny's iconic character like that, it takes a, obviously there's ability, but I think it takes a, a level of courage as well as a writer because you're not quite sure how maybe fans of Michael Vanny or Laidlaw or even his own fans are, how, how everybody's going to react to it. Reading it, I'm aware of how maybe alike Laidlaw and Rebus are at some times. They're both loners. They both like to walk about the dark streets at night. They don't like going home. And they're both intellectual men and very deep thinkers. They, they don't really take what their bosses are saying very seriously at all. They will go their own way. So yes, maybe maybe the two men aren't so far apart. Well, as I say, I'm uh, very envious of you being able to read that. I think I'll certainly I'll just wait wait for the like everybody else until it hits <laughs> the, the shelves later this year. In terms of we're, we're almost at the end of the, the podcast, Carol. But in terms of your your own writing, I take it you're just you know, you balance between your other work and, and the writing, but it's just that it's just a never-ending process of ideas and, and books that you're working on because that's just something that you enjoy doing. You don't enjoy doing it. It's torture. <laughs> all, all writers say that's absolute torture. So you type the words at the end and that's the end of your final draft and you send it away and you think, I am never writing another book for as long as I live. And then you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and you think, now about those urban people who go about running about all that orienteering that they do through multi-story car parks and then did you just start writing and it all happens all over again you think why do you put yourself through this it's a bit like running a marathon you think why and when you cross the line you think never again and then the next day you think you know I think I've got another one I think I've got another one in my leg so I'll just do it again so I've got one coming out in September and then I'm 10,000 words into the one that's going to be published after that so Yes, it's it's busy. It is very busy. Brilliant. Well, well, we'll certainly look forward to that. But I have to say thank you for joining me on the, the podcast. I've really enjoyed chatting to you about your own work and then also some of your favourite and not-so-favourite books. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at readallabout20 on Instagram at readallaboutitpodcast, or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.